Luke 11. We'll be in verse 14, and we'll work down to uh, 28. What I've seen, um, I have uh, been a believer for a while now, and what I've seen in my life is there has been a unhealthy, I think, um, dichotomy, uh, which means like a separation between um, what some would say a, a spirit-filled church, right, and a Bible church. And some people have created this dichotomy. And I, I want to show you why I don't think that that really exists, all right? Um, because when I've grown up, I've, I've been in every type of church that you can imagine. Um, I went to a Baptist church growing up, but I've, I've been just about every type of place. i um, been a part of a lot of different ministries. I've been in the ministry since I was 18. Uh, I know I look 19, but um, that's why I have the beard. Um, but I'm 33, and so that puts me at a good 10-plus years in ministry. So I've seen a lot of different things. Um, and, and so what I've seen is this unhealthy dichotomy. So I wanna, what I want to do is, is show you that the dichotomy is not there um, and, and how they are, they are the same. And so this is what my goal is today. So let me just show you a text in, first, in Second Peter that I think will help set up what, where we're going, okay? Look at first Peter, or Second Peter 1, 20 through 21. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, Right? So we don't, we don't make this up, right? Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the what? Holy Spirit. Okay. All right. So what we have is the, the scriptures are the voice of the Holy Spirit. All right? That's a, if you want to write anything down, that's the first thing you need to write down. All right? The scriptures are the voice of the Holy Spirit. So when we open um, the words of God, um, we are hearing, really, the Spirit's inspired word, okay? So that's very important that you see that as we move forward, okay? We have historically, I think, failed to see this connection because what I see and what I've grown up seeing was... Many churches that I grew up in, I grew up in, a, in a, like I said, a traditional Baptist church, and that's fine. I don't, I'm not against tradition or anything like that. Um, by the way, I think we are a tradition in our own little way. I mean, it, I know that sounds scary to some of you, but we are. Um, and so what, what you see in, in my churches when I grew up, we would have a church that was really big. We wanted to proclaim the Word of God, and, and that was great. But what I saw was there was a deadness there um, where there were no men rising up, um, leading their families, leading a mission. There were no uh, gospel-centeredness that was going out and, and we're seeing the gospel on display. We weren't, we weren't doing anything for, for mission. And, and it, was a, it, was a, it was a deadness. And there was always issues in the church that were never really dealt with. There was no church discipline. Um, and so there was a deadness there and it was a disconnect. And so um, what I see in, in people that grow up in those environments, they then move from that because they say, well, um, Bible equals deadness. And then they go for something that's exciting and vibrant, even if it's not biblical. Even if it's not biblical. And so what, we, what we're seeing here is this connection that I think has to be shown and demonstrated. And what I also see is, I, I believe that if we truly understand um, the Word of God, and it really does um, speak directly to our hearts, and it really does uh, change the way that we think about God, the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think about um, suffering, it will have an impact, and we will see um, something distinctly different. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to build um, 
in us and let us see the importance of having a passion for the, and, and love for the Word of God because that is what it means to understand and grasp who the Holy Spirit is and what he does in our lives through his word. And so I'm going to take Luke 11 and I'm going to explain verses 14 through 28. In the bottom half of the sermon, this is a little bit different, I'm going to flesh out what, what Jesus is saying here to these people. All right? You ready for that? We're going to be all right there? Okay, good. Verse uh, 14, Luke 11. Now he was casting out a demon. This is Jesus that was mute. When the demon had gone out, um, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some said he'd cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him, listen to this, they're testing him. They're seeking for him a what? A sign from heaven. So here's what you have. You have two types of crowds here that are gathered primarily that we see here in the text. You see Jesus, uh, there's, there's one group of people that are accusing Jesus of, um, of, of his powers coming from Satan. That's what they're saying. This is what they're accusing him of. Beelzebul is a, is a term used, Lord of the Flies. It's a phrase often uh, to describe demonic sorcery. So they're saying Jesus is just, he's doing these miracles and it's just demonic sorcery. And there's another group of people here that those who are, who are looking or asking for a sign. Now I want you to notice the language that is used here because it says, and they, they tried to test him, so they asked for a sign to test Jesus, okay? So here's what I want you to see. Jesus knew that no sign would make them believe. They were not going to believe from a sign. It was not what he was intended to do. It was not why he brought signs so that now we can believe. Uh, uh, to even bring this further, if you look in like Matthew 13, 58, it says there was one point which Jesus, it says he did not do many mighty works because they were of their unbelief. He didn't want to do signs so they would just believe in the signs. He, they did not have a heart change. They were trying to test him so they could see empirical evidence to see if he was really real. Is that faith or is it believing in the unseen? It's believing in the unseen, right? This is what faith is, believing in the unseen. They want to see this empirical evidence. So here's what I want to show you. A desire for a sign is not birth or nor does it stem from belief. Rather, a desire for a sign and a desire for us to want to see a sign, it stems from our unbelief. From our unbelief. If you notice Israelites... What did they cry out for? God, give me a what? A sign. A sign. And there was no real heart change to that, but it stems from our flesh because it's not faith in an invisible God who works. So they wanted this sign. This is what these people wanted. Now let's look in verse 17. Verse 17, it says this. But he, knowing their thoughts. Remember, you've seen this before in Luke. 
Jesus is showing his divine power that he has, uh, he can have the ability to know people's thoughts. I know some of you wives think that you have that divine power of your husband's to know their thoughts. Mine seemingly does in some cases has that. Um, but Jesus could read people's exact thoughts. He could read their, their doubts. So this is him showing his divine character here. And it says, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. And a, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Um, because of time, I cannot unpack all of this because I want what I want to show you at the very end. But, but here's, here's what we're seeing here. Um, this is not a verse um, to show uh, church disunity or anything like that. It's not any of those things. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of church unity. It's just not one of those verses, all right? Uh, what he's showing is, is the, the people are accusing him of, of this is demonic power. And he's like, why would demonic power go against demonic power? So he's showing you why would this be divided? Does it make any sense? And any, any kingdom that tries to do that will surely fall. So it's not about a house divided, Carolina fan, you know, state fan in the same house. It's nothing. You can't use this verse for that, all right? Um, and so here's what I want to show you next. Verse 20. But if the finger of God that I cast out of demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But the one stronger that he attacks from him will overcome him. And he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Now, um, we've covered this before, but when, I, when we talk about Satan, um, I want to show you exactly who, who he is. Because I think there's a lot, especially here in the South, we have a lot of misunderstanding of Satan. Uh, scripture calls him in Ephesians 2, 2, he's a prince of the power of the air. Jesus calls him ruler of the world. And that's only because, and we've covered this before, because God lets him. All right, God allows him, he places him in, in, he puts him in place so that he would complete his redemptive purposes. So what man intended for evil, God intends for good. And so here's what I want to ask. Whose kingdom has come here? What does verse 20 say? His, his kingdom has come. So who is on the attack here? Christ. Christ is on the attack and so Jesus illustrates him as he's, he's a strong man, but he's like, I'm a stronger man. And who's in the house? Satan is in the house, and he is trying to defend off. Like, you, get, you get this example here. Because I always think we're always like, you know, Satan's in on tack, and we need to bind Satan from this place. We need to pray, you know, God, God, you know Satan, we bind you. And, I'll, and by the way, I don't think it's ever good to pray to Satan. I'm just saying, all right? And so, but here's what happens here. Here's the picture that we get. You even see what he tells Peter. He says in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Is it the canons of hell shall not prevail against it? Or is it the gates of hell that should not prevail against it? Look, look it's Satan who, who believes that he has this role and this authority in this world, but he does not. It's God who has this authority. And it's Satan going, 
they, have, they, they know that they have this destiny that is only in the palm of God's hand, this fullness of time that we've even seen earlier in Luke with this, this demon was like, are you, is this our time now? They knew that God has the final hour in which they would end their, uh, their evil. They knew that God has that power. And so here is Satan, and it says his armor will be removed. Uh, Jesus was going, is going to do that. Um, you also have him taking away the spoils I think a perfect example of that is, is back in Luke 8 when this man is full of demonic oppression and he's, he's, he's got demons in him. He's got demons dwelling in him. He's a non-believer. And so Jesus casts out the demons and they're scattered and they're thrown into a swine. They're thrown into swine. It's very interesting here because what Jesus tells him next is to, to return home and declare how much God has done for you. So at one point, this, this would be a possession of Satan, but now he is a mouthpiece of God. This is a spoil God has used for his goodness. So I don't want you to see Satan, this yin-yang picture. It's not. It's not. It's, you have a God who is in complete control and complete authority over him. He has never done anything without God's permission. If you look in Job, you see that beautiful picture. He cannot do anything without that. So Jesus here is our victor. But here's what I want to show you next. Look in verse 23. Verse 23, it says, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there's no neutrality here. There's no neutral ground. Not every believer is demon-possessed. We don't believe that. But we do believe that Every, well, yeah, not every non-believer is demon-possessed. We do believe that you belong and you submit to something, all right? So if you're a non-believer, uh, Scripture says, uh, as, as you'll see later here in the text, we'll explain, you're children of Satan. That's what Jesus calls the Pharisees over and over and over again. Augustine, he describes how we are like donkeys. And we have, and you say, yeah, I see that, um, and we have a, a rider on our back, and the rider is either, either Satan or Christ. So you're in one camp or the other. So let's see how Jesus explains this further. Look in verse 24. <clears throat> verse 24 says this. Um, when the unclean spirit has gone out of the person, it passes through the waterless place, the desert, seeking rest and finding none. It says... I'll return to my home from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And so here you have here is he's saying, if this man is cleansed of this demon and he's ridden of this demon... It says that seven more can come. So you have to, the question that is asked, is this experience, is this sign of what God is doing? And this is why I think Jesus is telling the story and showing them this analogy. If this guy's demon is removed from him, is that enough? And actually, what Jesus explains is it actually gets worse because here's the thing that doesn't happen with the guy. 
He does not have heart change. He does not have a new heart. He is not a new creation. So he's like, listen, you can continue to cast out demons. We continue to show you the signs. And you can imagine these people that were around, they saw. Can you imagine this glorious sign of seeing uh, a demon being cast out? And Jesus is saying, listen, that's not even going to make you believe. It's not even going to make the guy whose demon leaves him believe. It, it requires something different. And what Jesus is showing them, I can show you this sign, but it will not sustain you. So we have to build on something more than signs and evidence. So let me show you this. Verse 27. As he said these things. Now, now we, when we look at scripture, we want to see things that join a sentence. Here it is. As he's saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that you bore and the breast at which you nursed. Gross, right? Um, But here's what Jesus says next. But he said, Blessed, listen, rather, rather are those who hear the word of God and do what? And keep it. Blessed rather. She's like, blessed is Mary. No, blessed rather. I bet the Catholics love this part, right? When Jesus corrects her and calls her out. No, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and they keep it. This is what Jesus is showing this story, this big picture story of this is an experience. This is something that you can trust. This is, but it's not going to sustain you. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it or abide in it. I, I love what Jesus does here because he is consistently showing us the importance of abiding in his word. He even tells one of my favorite passages of all time is John 8. 31 through 32. And this is where I'm going to flesh this idea out of what it means to abide in his word. Look at this. John 8, 31 through 32. And Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, as a very loose term, I'll show you why in a minute. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free free. So notice what he notice how he phrases this. If you abide in my word, you are kind of a disciple. Is that what he says? No, he says you are truly my disciples. And so why would he frame it this way? What does he mean when he says truly my disciples are the ones who abide in my word? Because here's what this implies. When he says truly, it actually can be translated, really, you are really my disciples if you abide in the word. So this implies one thing, that, that there are fake disciples. There are those who think they are disciples, but they are not disciples. And interestingly enough, he's saying this to Pharisees who said they believed, it says they believed in him, but you look later, he calls them children of Satan. Is that a compliment or not? No, it's not. He's like, you don't believe in me. You're you're trying to kill me. You don't believe in me. You're trying to murder me. 
So he is challenging the heart of the Pharisees saying, listen, if you really, if you truly a real, for real, legit disciple abides in my word. This is primary is what he's saying. If we want to know who real disciples are. He's like, it's not the people who look for the signs. It's those who abide, abide in the word. Have I made my point here? Is, is this clear what Jesus is saying? It's clear, right? It's clear. Okay. So let me just say it this way. Early, I believe, in the life of a believer, early on when you first meet Jesus, the Spirit of God begins to change you from the inside out. You begin to love God more than you love your sin. You begin to hate and fight and war against your sin. And it's not, you're not built that way. You're not built that way. You're built to love your sin and love yourself and, uh, you know, make idols and create idols and our hearts are worship factories. But you began to love the God of the Bible because the Spirit of God the scripture says, dwells in you, and as Ephesians 1 says, seals you into the day you receive your inheritance. He lives inside of you, and he begins to, listen, draw you to this. And here's why. Because he inspired this. And so early on, I believe in a believer's life, you're drawn to this. And Jesus says that the Spirit will teach you all truth. And so you begin to progress and you begin, your eyes begin to be open to what this word says and you have a longing to know it and live by it. I've used this example before, but I want to use it this way. Um, I always refer to this story because I think it's helpful. Um, When I became a believer, I was 11 years old and I, I did the whole altar call thing, and I walked forward, and um, the pastor met me now and shared the gospel with me, and I received Jesus. I asked him to save me. The Spirit of God drew me, and uh, I cried out to him. And another uh, kid came next to me, and he, same age, and I began to see my life go a different direction because I believed that I was truly a believer. And I think he had, like I think I've described this word, this kid had an emotional experience. But let's just say that he did trust Christ that day. And I, I, maybe I shouldn't say that he didn't. Um, but I can tell by the fruit. You know, by the fruit you can tell that. Uh, that's what scripture says. So we want to say that. But let's just say he did. That means when we meet up again and we're 70 years old, the Lord would have shown us things in his word that would have changed us consistently. And I think it's some, we would have gr- agreed at 70 on some pretty foundational things. Because we are abiding in the word. It's nothing we're doing. It's just the Lord, the spirit of God, who's drawing us to the word of God so that we can, our eyes can be open. He's doing a work. And it's, as Ephesians, as Philippians says, he's completing the work that he started in us. And so I believe that that happens And I believe there should be, in a believer's life, a continuation to love 
and pursue the truth of Scripture. I believe when someone starts to deviate from that, if they're really believers, he'll bring them back. But if they continue to deviate that and continue to walk away from that, and continue to, I would say this, that they're not truly his disciples. And I would say that because that is what Jesus says. And so people often throw this at me when I try to say Scripture primary, Scripture chiefly in your life, holding this. They say, well, Ben, that's just academia. You're just trying to get people to be smart and heady and theological. Let me tell you this. When people say that to me, that ticks me off. Here's why that ticks me off. Before I was a believer, I could barely read, all right? I had so much trouble learning in school that I I could not read at 11, all right? I I struggled. I I could read like cat in the hat books, all right? That was my level, all right? And when God saved me, the very first thing that the Spirit of God began to do in me was a desire to know Him and walk with Him. And so I would hold the King James Bible. It was the only Bible I had with all the pictures in it. And I would cry out to God, God, would you just, would you just help me read so I could read your word, so I, could, so I could know you, so I could know how to walk with you and walk intimately with you, and so I can walk beside you and I could hear from you, Lord. Would you just teach me, Lord, show me how to do that. Show me how to do that. And that's what he did. He answered my prayer. Uh, I began to read and I began to passionately read. And I was excited about reading the Bible and learning because it wasn't just for my knowledge and my head to be built. I, I was passionate about knowing the God of the Bible. And I want you guys to know that. That's, that is where we should be in our heart. We should be crying out, Lord, if it, help me to read more so I can read your Bible, Lord. Help me to do that so I can know you and I can walk closely to you and I can be intimate with you, Lord, in your word. Help me um, to do that. And so it's not this head knowledge that I'm throwing at you that I want everyone in integrity to be these great big theologians because here's what I think. I think the, the most uneducated person in Greenville can still take this And God can transform their hearts and their minds, and they can walk closely to the Savior. And so it's not this head knowledge. It's not this theological neat-nick life. life, But it's this intimacy. And so I think God can be known chiefly through his word. And we have to be careful with our experience. I think God can use our experiences to, again, bring us back to the word. I think God does that. I think if you're a believer who's been a believer for a while and you've seen life just kick you a while, kick, beat you up a little bit, and what God does is he uses that to draw us back to the word so that we can know him. And so this whole thing's about knowing him. I love what 1 Samuel three twenty one says. Listen to this. The Lord revealed himself to Samuel by what? The word of the Lord. How did Samuel see the Lord revealed to him through his word? So you have here this intimacy, and here's the way I think he still operates today. Today. 
is he reveals himself to you chiefly, primarily through his word. So you want to walk with him? You want to know him? Pursue his word. And so if you are running to the Lord without this, I believe that you'll find something else. And so everything that we do, all of our passions and our running to God and our desire to know him and walk with him has to be filtered through his word. I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He's a, uh, one of the great preachers. Um, they call him the prince of preachers, actually. Um, started a, a church in London, and it just blew up. And his passion for the word is one of my favorite things about him. He's one of my heroes. And this is what he says. Uh, the prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, says this in a sermon called The Comforter. He says, I've heard many fanatical persons say that the Holy Spirit revealed this or that to them. Now, that is very generally revealed nonsense. The Holy Ghost does not reveal anything fresh now. He brings, listen to this, old things to our remembrance. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have told you. The canon of revelation is closed. There's no more to be added. God does not give a fresh revelation, but this is what he does. He rivets the old one when it has been forgotten and is laid dusty in a chamber of our memory. He fetches it out and cleans the picture, but does not paint a new one. And so what God does, even in our experience, even in our tough, difficult times, even of our trials and our tribulations, or even in our triumphs, what he's doing even in that experience is he's bringing these things out so that we would remember and see the word of God because it's showing us the person of God. And so here's how I want to piece this together here at the end. I want to show you one last thing that I think would help. We talk about the Holy Spirit at the very beginning. We talk about this is inspired word of God. We, we use a language filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? So let me show you what that means this morning. Ephesians 5, 17 through 20. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, this is why in decision-making the will of God tonight is important. Don't be foolish, understanding what the will of the Lord is. Okay, there. It's my plug. Verse 18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with what? The Spirit. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence of, for Christ. So what happens? It says when the person is filled with the Spirit, there is a outport they begin to see in their lives. And it's almost like, it's kind of weird when you read it because it's like, that's a little bit like high school musical. They're singing together and they're singing to each other and there's this melody in their heart, you know, and they're making much of Christ. And I think that's, that's excellent. But let me show you what, what Paul is showing us here because when you look at Ephesians, a good thing to do is look at their, the sister book, which is Colossians. You can read, if you, if you do a study on uh, Ephesians, you should also do one with Colossians because they're saying the same things and they help you to interpret the other, okay? So look at Colossians 3, 16. 
Here's what he says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with the thankfulness in your heart. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. So what do you have? You have both the same response, right? You have you know, a, a person who has gladness in their heart and thanksgiving, and there's joy there and, and just wanting and a desire to make much of Jesus. I showed you one, the, the, the Ephesians 5 passage is a person who is full of the Holy Spirit. But look at the Colossians passage, Colossians 3, the person who is, the, 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 what is what's the difference? The word of Christ dwell in you richly. So what's Paul saying? Being filled with the Holy Spirit And letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly is the exact same thing. All right? The exact same thing. So you want to have joy. You want to walk in gladness. You want to encourage one another. You want to make much of Jesus in your life. Scripture says you have to be full of the Holy Spirit. Scripture also says that you have to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And Scripture also shows us that they are exactly the same thing. They're not disconnected. So I'm encouraged because of what God says to Samuel and what he says to us, that God reveals himself to us through his word. If you are chasing experiential Christianity, I think God can use that at times, but it will not sustain you in your darkest hour. In the moments where you are suffering, in the moments you are dealing with great pain and great difficulty, which as believers, Scripture says, we will all face, it will not sustain you but what will sustain you is knowing him walking closely to him because god reveals himself to us through his word so when i'm struggling when i'm having a hard time and my marriage is tough and the kids won't listen you know <laughs> kid keeps waking up in the middle of the night, throwing up on me. You know, he's colicky. He's you know, throwing his back out, you know. And I'm having a hard time with the year that I just faced with seeing people die, seeing great hardships. Let me tell you this. I can't live for experience. I have to walk and know him through his word because that is what sustains me because it reminds me of who he is and his love for me. And I want to close by just giving you this. In John 6, Jesus tells his disciples, the words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. And Peter asks Jesus, Lord, to whom shall I go? Where should I go next? Or where, what should I do next? I don't know where to go, God. I don't know how to make this decision, God. I don't know well, what to do. You're, Lord, you're going you're, you're gonna to walk away. Do we, do we go after another rabbi? What do we do? And here's what Jesus says. You have the words of eternal life. And so I want to give you that this morning. Because what I think our church needs more than anything to walk 
close to Christ. And that means we chase hard after him by abiding in his word. So why do we make much of the Bible? Why do we teach the Bible the way that we do? Because we want you to walk closely to God. Because in your darkest hour, this is what you'll need to know him and walk with him.